Well, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 for the final time. We'll look back at this chapter today, and next week we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. So today is a a theological review of Ephesians 3. We've decided to do this like we did when we studied the book of Romans several years ago, and that's after each chapter, we're looking so much at the trees to back up and get a, a feel for the forest so we see the full argument that Paul is making in this epistle. I think it's important to kind of put that in in momentum and in our setting in our minds. So I'm going to read the entire chapter and hear it as a letter to the Ephesians that Paul was writing. Hear it as the Lord wrote it through him. Ephesians 3, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given me to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ." and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Every serious Christian reads his or her Bible. Every serious Christian who understands this reads the Bible not because we 
have to or should, but because we get to and want to. And every reader of the Bible comes to the Bible with a certain set of understandings and expectations that are constantly corrected by reading the Bible, by understanding, by studying God's Word. Who God is, what God is like, who man is, and what man is like. Find constant correction and clarification, greater precision in our minds by reading and studying the Word of the living God. To read the Bible correctly is to be corrected and informed on these realities of the nature and identity of God and the nature and identity of man. That's been the case was with our study alongside the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. This letter to the Ephesian church written by the Apostle Paul, that church in a city that was dominated by worship of Diana, the great temple of Artemis that was there. Uh, it was a pagan city. And Paul went, took the gospel there, stayed for three years as their pastor. I always think of this, this church. Imagine having Paul as your pastor, and then he leaves, and, and you have Timothy. Pretty good church setting. We've been studying Ephesians for over a year now. And in order to keep the forest and the trees in view, we, we paused at the end of chapter 1 and at the end of chapter 2, and now at the end of chapter 3 to kind of back up and see the flow of argument. And I think it's very important. If not, if not for you, it certainly is for, for me. Now, in order to get a running start, we need to go back in understanding chapter 3 to understanding what's going on in chapter 2. But that's not really sufficient without going back to chapter 1. So if you begin the, the book, you understand that from the very beginning, Paul, we had this as our theme from the very beginning. Paul is describing in the entire book of Ephesians, the work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. The work of God, the wealth of God demonstrated, displayed, transmitted, gifted to us, graced to us in Jesus Christ. The work of wealth of, and wealth of, wealth of God in Jesus Christ. He opens the epistle by extending the familiar, well-wishing greeting of grace and peace to you. And that's one of those things that we typically kind of fly past. But if you stop and realize what grace and peace are, it is, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. Grace to you means I want God to extend to you everything you really need. What do we really need? We need righteousness forgiveness in order to come to God. And that all comes by grace through faith. In chapter two, he comes back to grace, grace, grace. You've been saved. Grace is everything we need. He, he says, God will give you all you truly need. If that's not enough, he says, and peace. Now, peace is an interesting concept. It's shalom in the Hebrew, irene in the Greek. And you put those together and it means the removal of everything unpleasant, undesired, and the addition of everything desired. I was just in Israel, and I love the, the greeting. It's not, hey, howdy, it's shalom. I want you to be well with all that you desire. So think about this. The gospel comes to give us everything we truly need and everything we truly want or should want. Then he launches the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament between verses 3 and verse 14. And it's all about the work of God the Father through the 
gift of his son by the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit to help us understand, believe the gospel and realize that we are adopted sons and daughters of God, inheritors of an unimaginably, indescribably amazing gift in salvation. As you move, move through the first three chapters, we, we notice that there's an importance in the pronouns where Paul talks about we and us and you and y'all, if I can be Southern for a minute, the plural of y'all. And what he means about that by talking about we and us are the Jews and you and y'all are, are the Gentiles. And the, the glory of the gospel is it brings these two groups together. It's a big deal that they were brought together. We keep talking about this, but I, I was just, in Israel and saw the distinction between Jew and Gentile very, very prominent. They had different diets, ate differently, different calendars, different weekends, different holidays, different ways that they looked at the morning and night, different ways of designating days, different ways they dressed, different languages, different places of worship. There were pagan temples and synagogues, different ways their children played, different neighborhoods, different education system different places they could eat shop, unkosher and kosher foods, different greetings, different goodbyes. They were different in every imaginable way. And not only that, they hated each other for good reason. The reality was that for centuries, the Gentiles had encroached on Israel's real estate. At that point, at this point in the writing of Ephesians, Rome was dominating the Jews and nation of Israel, persecuting them in their own land through exorbitant taxation, religious persecution. Eight years from the writing of this letter would be the fall of Jerusalem to Rome in AD 70. Tens of thousands of Jews would then be taken captive back to Rome to be slaves. Yet, Paul tells these Ephesians, a pagan city with a large Jewish population, that God was creating a new humanity from Jews and Gentiles, which would no longer be Jews and Gentiles, but Christians because of Christ. Common faith in the gospel. Chapter 2 tells us that both Jew and Gentile and everyone before and since then was born the same way, spiritually dead. That's what we share in common with each other. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And yet in verse four, God made you alive, being rich in mercy. In the last half of Ephesians 2, the apostle explains that this new covenant people have been brought together as one new multi-ethnic group before the Lord to preach to the nations, to extend the gospel to the world so that no one would not hear because everyone was a missionary. Then we come to chapter 3, and you kind of take back and look at this amazing chapter. Paul, Paul actually gives his own amazement at God using him as a, a missionary and a, and a pastor. I, I can identify that with that a little bit. I, I just look back at my life, at my sin, at my, my upbringing, at my my bad decisions over and over and over and that God would save me is amazing, that God would allow me to stand here today and open, open his word and say, let's study it together is amazing. Paul had that multiplied. So as I said a minute ago, the Bible informs us 
on every page about who God is and what God's like, who man is and what man is like. And we're going to see that, especially from a divine perspective, looking at what God is like and what he has done together here in chapter 3. So let's look then briefly. i got three little, little uh, points in our outline to help us get our minds and wrap our thinking around the entire chapter, a theological overview of Ephesians chapter 3. First thing is in verse 1, that's all. God's providence is operative in our difficulties. God's providence, His sovereignty, His power, His love is alive, is, is operative in our difficulties. Paul says in verse 1, For this reason, Jew and Gentile being brought together, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Perspective may be your most valuable possession. How you view life, how you view up, down, good times, bad times, and how you view hardship and difficulty and suffering and persecution and undesired things that interrupt your life is a matter of perspective. And we see that here from Paul. I, Paul, the prisoner, the prisoner. Prisoner of who? Christ Jesus? Now, we've read this a lot. If you were reading this the first time, you would scratch your head and say, I think there was a typo made. The, the prisoner of Christ Jesus? Paul is now in Rome under house arrest at sword point, guarded by a Roman soldier that he'll describe in chapter 6, by the way, all of his armor. He's being held at sword point. He can't move under the, the, uh, the edict of the emperor, Nero, Caesar. And he says, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not the only time he says this, four other times, actually. He says, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus in Philemon 1 and 9, the prisoner in the Lord of the Lord in, in Ephesians 4, 1, and his prisoner in 2 Timothy 1, 8. Further, in Ephesians 6.20, he calls himself, I'm an ambassador, I'm a missionary in chains. I'm a prisoner. What does he mean by this? Well, it's remarkable to me that he never, ever, ever once refers to himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar. But he actually was a prisoner of Rome and of Caesar. His theology and the power of his perspective enabled him to look past the temporal to the eternal, past the physical to the spiritual. He saw God's invisible hand in the glove of the providence of his circumstances in a way that he could see that God was still there and God was in charge. I'm a prisoner of Christ. His circumstances did not discourage him. How did he get in prison? Well, he was charged with Sedition by the Jews, treason against the emperor. Why? Because he preached that Jesus was God. And to do that was to be an atheist, to say that Caesar was not God, to not believe in the true God according to Rome. He was in trouble religiously. He was in trouble secularly and arrested. They didn't know what to do with him, so they just locked him up. And in God's providence, locking him up benefited him, benefited 
the Ephesians, and look at what we're doing this morning. It benefited us. We're reading his correspondence from then. It's striking that in all his prison epistles that he wrote, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he never once says, this is a bad circumstance and I'm a prisoner of the emperor. He understood and he, un- and he believed that the one who ultimately was in sovereign control over him was not the emperor, but was King Jesus. And his being in prison and the duration of his incarceration was not determined by Caesar, but by Jesus. Why? I love the last phrase, for the sake of you Gentiles. We study this so often. Paul, the lover, he was a Jew of Jews. Read Romans uh, chapter 10. These were the people he prayed for, the people he loved. Um, He he was uh, uh, wanted so badly to visit the gospel to the Jews, which Peter was able to do, but... God told Paul, go to the Gentiles. And yet still, read the book of Acts. He goes into every city. Where does he go first? The synagogue. And how does that work out? It never does. Well, so he pushes them back to the Gentiles. I'm here for the sake of you Gentiles. What everyone sees as a bad circumstance is not a bad circumstance. God is using this for gospel purposes. Why? Because he was being faithful in the midst of difficulty. We've said it so many times before. I often think of my own life, how many many situations I often try to get out of when in retrospect, God actually put me into for his glory and for my good. Simple designation, he's Christ's prisoner. So don't be troubled by politicians, by political parties, by the evening news. Don't be troubled by personal trials that seem to victimize you. Develop a theology for suffering, for difficulty like Paul did. He could smile in the face of difficulty because his eternity was secure and his faith was in the one who he knew he would spend time with forever. We don't grieve then as the world grieves as believers. We don't suffer as the world suffers. We don't lose heart as the world loses heart. We don't lose as the world loses. We don't endure hardship as the world endures hardship. We don't bury our loved ones as the world buries theirs. We don't get sick and we don't die as does the world. Why? Because if we follow Paul's example, we will have a settled joy in difficulties and sufferings when we see God's invisible hand in the glove of our troubling circumstances. What a God. Then, obviously, at the end, for the sake of you Gentiles, in his difficulty, he said, there's a great anesthetic for the pain of suffering. Serve others. Serve others. He got his mind off his personal circumstance and put it on others he could serve In prison, he began a letter ministry. Are you glad that that worked out? God's providence is operative in our difficulties. We will move faster through the rest of the chapter. (laughs) Secondly, God's grace is a precious stewardship. Oh, this is so sweet to watch Paul think this through. God's grace is a precious stewardship. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. There it is. That's his ministry. God, God gave Paul grace, 
and said, this grace is a spiritual commodity I want you to teach and spread and talk about with everyone, including the hated Gentiles. Grace is a stewardship. Paul understands. He calls it in to the Corinthians a treasure in an earthen vessel, a clay pot that's housing an eternally precious reality. Then he starts talking about revelation. This is one of the most important sections in the New Testament about the New Testament, honestly. God's mystery is disclosed by New Testament revelation, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in, in brief. So what a mystery is, is, is something that's it's not like Scooby-Doo, where you figure out the, 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 the plot and then you know who was the, the villain and who was the hero. No, a mystery in Mysterion in the New Testament is something that was hidden or not revealed in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the current New Testament revelation. It was hidden and now it's revealed. He'll say that in just a moment. By revelation that was made known to me, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now he goes on to talk about that in verse four, that was established by the New Testament, by the writings of the New Testament. By referring to this, when you read, there's the New Testament, you can understand my insight into this mystery of Christ, the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Oh, there were shadows and there were prophecies and there was hints and inklings. But the idea of a crucified Messiah, according to 1 Corinthians 1, the idea of a crucified Messiah on a Roman cross for the propitiation of sins was, was foggy and understood in Isaiah 53, but in full display at Calvary. When you read it, you can understand, I, I, I get this, I understand this, my mystery, my insight into the gospel, the mystery of Christ. Look how he discovered it. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, that's the Older Testament, as now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And we studied in great detail that the apostles and the prophets were the ones who spoke New Testament revelation contained in our books of the New Testament, but they were confirmed by signs and miracles so people knew they had attending supernatural authority. The apostles and the prophets were the ones who gave credence and, and um, a stamp of approval, divine approval to these New Testament writings. But this is, I love verse 6. To be specific, the Gentiles... To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. And this is important, not just Jesus, but Christ Jesus. We see the word Christ and we run over it pretty, quiet, pretty quick. Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah. So look at what he's saying here. Fellow heirs, fellow partakers in the body, fellow partakers in the promise of the Messiah, Jesus, through the gospel. You know what Paul is saying? The Jewish Messiah is the Savior of the world. The Jewish Messiah is our Messiah, our Savior as Gentiles. And for Paul to say that, who loved the Jews, was such an amazing stewardship. And he understood that. He said, I'm stewarding this to, to people who, who were before, he says in chapter 2, far off, and now they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
He goes back to the stewardship in verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace. Even his gifting, his preaching, his display of the miraculous was a gift of God's grace according to the working of God's power, which he will pray for for us in just a moment. And then I love the humility here. His own awareness of personal unworthiness was on full display. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. I am... I'm just ever aware of what a privilege it is for, for me to be able to be a Christian, to talk to people about the good news of the gospel. Paul felt like he was the worst of all sinners. He said, tells Timothy that, and the least of all the saints. This was Paul. Genuine humility. Genuine humil- humility is always the knee-jerk reflex and response to the great gift of salvation. The more we study the salvation that God gave us, the more we see that we're undeserving of it. Then he goes to talk a little bit more about the plan for the stewardship, the preaching the riches of Christ, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. We talked about that word unfathomable. It's a a, a maritime term. They would take soundings, they would take ropes with weights and throw it over to see when it hit the bottom so that they would know how, how deep the... The water was, throw this over the side and it doesn't hit the bottom, no matter how the rope is. Unfathomable, inexhaustible riches of Christ. That's why we call it the work and wealth of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, to bring to light what is the, literally the, the dispensation, the timing or the, of the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This was hidden in the Older Testament. They had hints and ideas, but they didn't understand the fullness. Every time I read that, I just, my mind instantly goes to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain I was just there, maybe Mount Hermon. And uh, he goes up and he peels back his flesh. He shows them the, his glory. And then Moses and Elijah show up, which is always interesting. How do they know it was Moses and Elijah? I get, they may have had a conversation. I don't think they had, hi, my name is Moses on their tag. Um, I just wonder, I just wonder about Moses. He's looking at the one. He's there with him. Obviously, he has a glorified mind, but that must have been amazing. One day, wouldn't it be interesting to have a conversation? I just want to ask Moses, can you, on that mountain, what was that like? Elijah, you can come over too. That'd be, be, be okay. Unfathomable riches of Christ. The dispensation of the mystery hidden is now revealed. So that, verse 10, the manifold, the unfolding wisdom of God might be now known through the church. This is just incredible. To the rulers and the authorities in in heavenly places, God is using the gospel, saving Jews and Gentiles, saving believers. He's using that to show his grace to angels, which 1 Peter 1, 10 says so, right? The angels long to look. They look at salvation. They don't quite understand it. Why? Because they were not given a chance to repent and be forgiven. When the demons fell, they were done. 
They scratched their heads. They were given grace and forgiveness for our rebellion when they weren't. What a mystery. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love eternal purpose. The cross was no accident. Jesus was not victimized. He willingly went to pay for the sins of those who believe. Eternal purpose. In whom we have boldness, confident access through faith in him. Not by sight, but by faith. We hold on to him by believing. Therefore, based on all this, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. It's good that I'm in prison. It's good that I'm in prison because it's better for you. You say, how is that? Have you read Paul's life? When would he have time to write Romans or Ephesians, or sorry, not Romans, Ephesians or Philippians or, or the prison epistles, except to be there? God locked him up to give him writing time. Incredible. For your glory. The mystery was revealed. Jews and Gentiles are now in the same body with each other, believers in the gospel, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, now now Christian, partakers with each other as a new people in the church. And we have that because of New Testament revelation. The apostles and the prophets verifying that message. The chapter ends in our third breakdown, which is God's power is acquired through prayer. God is so gracious to give us an account of Paul's prayer here at the end. Paul prays. Just as he did in the end of all the theology of chapter 1, he prays about the same kind of theology at the same nuances at the end of chapter 3. He, it's interesting to me that the more Paul thinks about theological truth, the more it puts him on his knees. It's his second prayer, as I said in the epistle. <clears throat> and we looked at this. It's, it's, it's important for me to look at these prayers from two, two angles. First is, this is how Paul prayed. I want to learn to pray like Paul prayed. Prayer is a learned behavior. The disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. You learn to pray better by those who pray more faithfully. So we learn to pray by listening to Paul. But what Paul prayed for is a great, a great paradigm, a great template for you and me to understand how to be more faithful believers. I want to be an answer to this kind of prayer that Paul would pray for us, that your leaders pray for you and that I trust you pray for each other. So it's both how to pray and how to be a prayer, an answer to prayer. Carson looks at this whole prayer and says, it takes nothing less than the power of God to enable us to grasp the love of Christ. And he's right. We broke this prayer down into four sections and it We did that on uh, successive weeks, four different weeks. The first is a prayer for the power of God's Spirit in verses 14 to 16. A prayer for the power of God's Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's a big deal. I I know that we read that so, so quickly, but that's a very big deal. The typical Jewish posture in prayer was to stand with holy hands raised. You see that actually encouraged in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The idea of bowing the knee 
get this, was not so much a religious exercise as it was a secular one. And that's important. When a ruler came into town, when Caesar walked by, you acknowledged his greatness by bowing on your knees. Isn't this interesting that Paul, who is in prison by Caesar, says, I bow my knees to who? To the Father. To the Father. His posture was, if I'm going to be submissive, I bow my knee to one and one only, and that's God. He talks about who God is and what God's like. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives this name. He's the source that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And we said, oh, I was so encouraging to see what this means. He grants according to his riches, not out of his riches, which is more. If I, gave, if I have $20 and, and I give you $10, now you have 10 and I have 10. Ben Hyman, is that correct? Um, my math was on the fly. So you have 10 and I have 10. He doesn't give out of his riches because that would be a diminishing of his riches. He gives according to his riches. According to his riches. And we'll see how much that is at the end of the prayer. According to his riches, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. A lot going on here. He's talking about us being mature, being given power. Where? Inner man. What is that? Look at the next phrase. In your hearts, that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the inner us. This is our thinking. The mission control central of, of who we are. He wants us to be empowered from the inside where we think the operations of our decision-making out. A divine enablement for power, which he had already said he received from the Lord himself. And then look what it's for. Look at the purpose. Verse 17. This is prayer for faith in Christ's abiding so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you want a life verse, that phrase might, might fit just well. Oh, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by our faith, by our belief and our, our believing. Keep hinting at it over in chapter 4. After describing an unbeliever's life, he says in Chapter, chapter 4, verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. His prayer, I hope this is your prayer for your own heart, for your kids, for your spouse, for your friends, for your, your pastors, your leaders, for anyone who you know who loves the Savior, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that our faith would be sharpened and more precise, more dialed into who he is and that he's alive and that he's knowable. Then he prays about Christ's love and that you being rooted and grounded in love, what kind of love will we keep reading? Verse 18, may be able to understand and comprehend with all the saints. It's a corporate a corporate pursuit. We pursue understanding the love of Christ, the power of the gospel, the change in our hearts with each other, with all the saints. It's not a solo effort. Church is important. 
What is the breadth and length and height and depth? You say, of what? That's all the dimensionality of what? And to know, verse 19, the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Just, just a strange construction. I pray that you know what cannot be known. You know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? He tells you next, that you're filled up to all the fullness of God. Fullness has to do with influence. That God's influence will come upon you because you believe and bask in the fact that Christ would love you. How much so? To go to a cross for us. To die in our behalf, on our behalf. Paul can't finish without turning north to God himself. And he wraps up this first part, first half of the epistle, heading very strongly toward the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4 with this. Now, okay, pause, full stop. Let's talk about the Lord a second. Now, to him, and it's, it's almost comical. To him who is able, able what? To do far more abundantly beyond all. That's a lot. Far more abundantly beyond all. All what? That you could request of the Lord or even conceive or think. Shouldn't we pray prayers that if they were answered, it would be so obviously God that we could give him glory. Ephesians 2 says, the unbeliever is dead and his trespasses and sins. Are you praying for the resurrection spiritually of those you love who don't know Christ? That's a supernatural work that we can ask God about. He told the Philippians, bring all your requests. Anything that would trouble you, bring it to God in prayer. He is able, look at that phrase, he is able to do more than we would even ask, even think or conceive. How? according to the power that works within us. Did you see that he just prayed that this power would be at work within us? And now it's at work within us to help us to ask or think things that only he could answer and beyond. To him be the glory in the church. Church is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ himself to Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. All generations forever and ever, that's to everyone all the time. Pretty comprehensive. So be it, amen. What a God. Who is able? Who is able? Is it possible? And I say this with a great deal of awareness in my own heart, but could it be possible that our prayer lives are thin because our confidence in God's ability is thin? 
if I really think if we truly believed that God was able to do more exceedingly beyond all we asked or thought, we would pray great things for his glory and for the good of those he loves. That, in essence, is an introduction to the first word of verse 1 in chapter 4. Therefore, therefore, based on all of this theology, three chapters of a deep, intense, rich, gospel-centered theology, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, Parakaleo, I come alongside you. I'm joining you in this effort. Implore you to live, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So what Paul is doing here is he's spent the first three chapters to be able to say all of this theology that we've studied together, that I've articulated in chapters 1 to 3, will now be applied to everyday, ordinary, great and small Christian living. Big things and small things. I like what Peter O'Brien says about this transition. The doxology, the prayer at the end of Paul's uh, prayer, at, uh, concludes the first half of the letter on the same note, with which it began in the introductory eulogy in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Namely, in praise of God for His mighty salvation initiated in eternity, carried into effect in Christ, and intended to redound to the praise of God's glorious grace for all eternity. Paul wants his readers to have a theological perspective of God's, on God's saving Purposes, mighty saving purposes. He prays that they might be empowered by Christ through the Spirit so that they might walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The prayer and doxology of chapter 3 function in an important preparatory way for the subsequent admonitions to love in the second half of the letter, end quote. And studying the first three chapters now for over a year, I told you at the very beginning I was surprised and maybe a little troubled to read some well-intended commentators who said the first three chapters are theology and the last three chapters are practical living. But I think what we found is looking at the first three chapters of theology, there was enormous implications for practical living. As we start chapter 4, we're going to find the other side of that coin, that in studying the practical applications of living, they are all rooted in theological understanding. They go hand in glove. So next week, we're going to look at verse 1, and I hope we can get through it. But I think if you read it, you'll understand this is, this is the central call to Christian living is to walk, to live in a manner worthy of your calling of the gospel itself.